Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. Because the coronavirus has turned the world upside down, we are trying something new with our podcast this week at Capital Research Center. Um, I'm the Communications and External Relations Director here at the Capital Research Center, and I am going to be interviewing our normal podcast host, Mike Watson, who is the Research Director here at CRC. Um, Mike is a uh, union specialist, so I thought that what we would do is I would ask him a few questions about sort of what's going on with the unions related to the coronavirus lockdown and what we can expect in the future. So, Mike, hey, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Great. Are you happy to be on that side of the mic, so to speak? <laughs> a little, little bit. Little okay, bit. cool. All right, so we're just going to talk generally about the coronavirus lockdown and what we can expect in the coming months. There's a lot of discussion, obviously, about the mask. Uh, should we be wearing them? Should we have mandates? There's a lot of discussion about schools opening back up, whether that should happen, if it should happen digitally, if it should happen in person. Um, so we're going to be talking about a few of those things. So let's talk generally about the push to continue the lockdown. Um, and we'll start with the mask debate. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly arguments on both sides that are fairly reasonable. Um, most people, I think, are wearing the mask because they consider it sort of a civic, civic yeah, responsibility. Yeah, a, a civic responsibility. We, throughout this whole process, because we don't, at least when this all started, we didn't know anything about this new disease and how what it did. We didn't even know how it, how it killed people, who it was going to kill. Uh, that's part of why they had such a, one of the theories why they had such a high death toll in New York was that they were using a treatment protocol for a different disease that's kind of similar but that it actually made things worse. And so some people who might have otherwise recovered using a new tr the new treatment protocols, uh, they, they didn't make it because of complications from the treatment protocol. Uh, you know, the mask debate and the mask issue is one of those things that comes up because we're making policy and we're trying to take public approaches in a case of very high uncertainty. You know, 12 months ago, if you went to the National Institutes of Health, the federal funder, the federal government's uh, medical research arm, basically, and you said the most important health issue of the next 24 months is going to be figuring out whether wearing a piece of cloth over your mouth and nose is going to meaningfully constrain the spread of an infectious disease, you would have probably been laughed out of the room. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't something that anybody was, that very many people, other than probably some specialists at university, at one or two universities, or one or two research labs who are just interested in this because they're virologists and they want to make tenure, uh, even had any sort of opinion about, or any sort of idea about. And now we all have and, an opinion. And now we all have an opinion, and we all have, you know, I think we should hope to an extent that it works. I mean, most people are wearing them because they feel a civic obligation. You know, CDC Director Redfield came out and said, if everybody, you know, if everybody follows it, in, you know, in public, we could have the, you know, this, you know, beat in six to 12 months or six to 12 weeks. That to me sounds optimistic. The research that I'm, that I've seen reported in public is very uncertain. It's, we have reason to believe that they're helpful. We have reason to believe that they may slow the spread of contagion. 
but it's equivocal and it's not like we've done a double blind, you know, you know, like a, uh, like a drug trial, you know, right. where you give somebody a, pl- you know, you give somebody the drug, you give somebody a placebo, right. placebo and you see. The data is uncertain. Yeah. The, the data, the data is uncertain. Is it, you know, my personal belief for adults, uh, that it's a reasonable measure that's low cost that we can take and it's not a huge deal in most cases. Well, what do you make? And I agree with you. I think that if you if there's a if there's a reason to think that it might cut down on the spread, then then there's nothing wrong with wearing a mask. I have I have no problems with that personally. But what do you make of places like Aspen, Colorado, which I took this from your Twitter feed, actually. I need to make that clear. Um, who have said, and, and D.C. has done something similar, where they're, again, equivocating about their yeah. mask mandates. So Aspen, for example, has decided that um, they're going to have a mask mandate until the day after the election, which I think is hilarious. And then D.C., for example, um, Mayor Bowser has said, which is where we are located, yeah. if anybody yeah. is interested in, in that, um, has said, okay, everyone must wear a mask when they go outside unless they're exercising or have health issues, things mm-hmm. like that. But she's exempted a lot of the local and federal government officials. What do you make of that kind of equivocation in the that, mask debate? That's a problem. Okay. It, it's a problem from a communication perspective. Uh, you know, is it a public health problem? Not likely. But is it a problem in conveying to the public that we are serious about this, we are making decisions based on data and research, uncertain data and research, but we're making, you know, but we're making uh, decisions based on data and research and not, you know, totemic, you know, that this is a totem of the miasma. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you're exempting people, when you are, again, I have no idea what Aspen was thinking. It's you know, to, to put the it... The cynic might see something the, a, negative a, there. A cynic <laughs> might see something there, um, you know, to put it in until the day after the election. Mm-hmm. When you know you have a problem mm-hmm. with people who are, you know, who don't trust that their public officials have their best interests at heart, either for political advantage or for, uh, you know, my concern is always that this is about... You know, public health officials have always wanted to obtain power over our lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. They tell us not to drink. They tell us not to eat sugar. They tell us not to drink soda. It's like the reverse of a syntax. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a sort of a you know that you know that you know is it a sign of penitent? You right. know, the, the, of the penitent, penitent with the p, mm-hmm. or with a t. Um, you know, again, I I don't think most public health officials are acting in that way. Uh, I think they're generally trying to make reasonable decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But when you do things like exempt federal officials or set it up until after the election. The day it, after. Literally the day after the election. <laughs> people are going to ask questions and you better have good answers. Right. So let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about government and, and sort of the election that's coming up, which is, I mean, less than four months away now. Um, which is absurd to think about. We've seen no debates. We've seen no, you know, town yeah, hall. Very weird. It's very weird. Very weird. So, the election is going to be impacted by all of this, of course. And and the big debate right now is vote by mail. And we've done a lot of work here at CRC and on the vote by mail issue. Today on, and I wrote a piece for the Federalists about it, which I will link to when we put this out on our website. 
Um, but today, the president came out and said that, you know, vote by mail is not the same thing as absentee voting because he's been, you know, hit by the left as having voted absentee. And he's even suggested, which I think he does these things knowing he's throwing a bomb and that's why he's doing it, um, that we should maybe delay the election. Should we delay the election? That kind of thing. I, I think I think uh, Mitch McConnell had the correct response to that when he was asked about it. He said the election date is set in stone. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he can delay the election. So, so let me ask you then about... What do you think about this push for vote by mail when people can go to the grocery stores, but they're being told, no, but you can't go vote? Right. It's it's complicated because there's a, a there's a right way and a wrong way to do to administer a largely mail ballot election. I'm going to conflate vote by mail and have in and no excuse absentee here conversationally. But let's let's call it a principally mail ballot election. OK, uh, you can do what California does and not have and allow people to ballot harvest to go to other voters and take their ballots into your possession as a political activist and then you drop them all off at the ballot box and i'm sure none of them were open tampered with in any way uh, it's very you can do what new jersey had a problem with in its primary where ballots were simply lost large percentage of ballots were disqualified because they were deficient because they were harvested and New Jersey uh, severely restricts to the point of effectively banning it like your spouse can take it to the mailbox but pretty much not nobody else and certainly not a candidate the the state attorney general we we mentioned on the on another episode of this podcast the state attorney general has charged candidates with ballot harvesting which you're not allowed to do in New Jersey um or you can do it like Florida, which has very strict rules about, for its no-excuse absentee, about how you are determined to be absentee, whether you can then vote in person if you've already requested absentee, when your absentee ballot is due, and who has the chain of custody. And Florida, which has a pretty good chain of custody and pretty good uh, no-excuse absentee system, has developed it over a period of years. Well, they kind of had the problems with the 2000 election. Right, right. It was part of their response to the 2000 election with the butterfly ballots where people couldn't punch all the way through. Mm -hmm. So they had to, you know, they had a bunch of election administration reforms, one of which was a fairly liberal no-excuse absentee policy. And pretty much, again, both parties mostly... You know, both parties, you know, how you can tell it's reasonable is that both parties like it when they win and both parties hate it when they lose. Right. <laughs> um, so Florida's, if you're going to, if you were building a Florida-like system, there would be a lot less of a problem than if you were just trying to append this haphazardly to your existing election because you're worried about what maybe will happen with the virus if people vote more or less normally. So there's no way to sort of stand. And so I should just add, and I don't want to stay on this too long, but I should just add that I recently interviewed someone who said, who had, he, he was, uh, he worked on some of the litigation following the 2000 election. And he said his concern about vote by mail is basically the same thing you just said, which is the rules are not standardized across the states. Right. And so there's going to be some challenges. There are going to be things thrown right. out. Right. I mean, think about, think about this, like. Litigation. Oh, the, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of litigation. You know, if you, you know, if I always have thought that 
you know, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, has really well-administered elections. Oh, how so? Uh, they pretty much everybody votes in person, but you can still postal vote if you're um, if you're absent, you know, if you're old-fashioned absentee or uh, or if you otherwise can't come to the polling place, you know, reasonably long election hour, voting hours. I think they're seven to ten a seven a.m. to ten p.m. Uh, and then the count is all done right there. Once the last vote has been cast, if you're in, I, I believe if you're in line, you can vote, kind of like here. Uh, but once the doors are closed and the last vote is cast, the ballots are put in a are put, you know, on somebody takes them in a chain of custody takes them to the to like a gymnasium where the count where the local authority has set up their vote counting center and they just do it right and they there. just count it right there in front of the they count all the votes right there in front of the candidates now it's easier for them because they tend to vote one election at a time mm-hmm. so your parliamentary election you have one one race there's it's just not a your, ton of people yeah it's just your it's just your member of parliament it's not like your member of parliament and your city councilor and your european parliament mm-hmm. which they don't have anymore and your uh you know, five referendums. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all the all the, you know, the party people are there, all the candidates are there, and then they all come up at the same time. You know, you can, if you watch a British election night, you'll see, you know, the prime minister is standing there with the random activist from the other party who's running against him uh, and the, like, monster raving loony guy in his funny hat and then, like, four other, you know, <laughs> random people, you know, four other random people, half of whom are in costume, you know, and then the the recording office, the the chief election officer, just sits there and reads. You know, Boris Johnson got you know sixteen thousand votes, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so and so, the Labour candidate got this. You know, got five thousand votes, and it's too late for us to implement yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, like, uh, but again, it's you know, compare that to say California, where the ballot, because of the way they consider postmarks and right. whether you had it in the mail on the election day. You know, so the it, sense I'm getting here, Mike, is that you think that vote by mail could actually be just a really difficult thing to manage and, and count. I think it's inherently a really difficult thing to manage, and if you're going to do it, you've got to do it right, and I'm worried we're not putting the thought and commitment in to do it right. Okay, well, that there it is. Okay, so let's move on. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you there, so... I basically agree with you there. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to something that you wrote recently in the Washington Examiner, an op-ed that you had, um, and the title was "Can't Get Out of Lockdown: Blame Extortion by Teachers Unions," which we kind of haggled over that title. We didn't want to be too too uh, dramatic in that title, but basically, what you were uh, talking about in that um, in that op-ed was how teachers unions are actually kind of pushing for this continued quarantine where children can't go back to school. Right. We have something that's very weird about the coronavirus disease, about COVID-19, compared to, say, the Spanish flu of 1918 or even other pandemic flus or even the seasonal flu that we get every year that we all get our flu shots for, is that while kids get sick from it, they don't get sick at as high a rate as adults. Mm-hmm. And they don't have as high a complication rate. They don't get, they not as many of them get hospitalized proportionally, and not as many of them thank, there's thankful, even, there's, thankfully very few of them die. Right, and there's even some, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but there's some, there's even some indication that the kids don't transmit it to adults. Yes, uh, in there they've done some survey studies in places that have had their schools open, mm-hmm. and kids don't seem to be particularly good transmission vectors. Right. 
in terms of like they get sick and then they spread it to a bunch of people. Uh, however, you have the teachers unions who are aggressively pushing to keep schools closed. And what that means functionally is that that means that in a two-runner household or with a single parent, who's going to watch the kids? And you're starting to get school districts that are coming out and saying, we're going to have, we're going to offer daycare (laughs) at school facilities, sometimes that you have to pay for. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use resources to help them learn while they're there. Yeah, right. Right. But they're still going to be getting their lessons over a computer because reasons somebody on twitter when that idea was floated that that started breaking open that districts were doing this somebody's like congratulations you've invented school right well it's worse you've invented all the potential if you assumed that children transmitted disease like the flu which we have no evidence that they do uh, you've taken all the potential negative effects of school and none of the potential positive effects. Right. So let's talk about the flu for a second because there was a recent um, video that the director of the CDC, what's his name, Redfield. Right? Yeah, Robert. I believe it's Robert Redfield. Okay, so he has a video that has been floating around and the Daily Wire actually just posted it where he talks about the threat of suicide is actually greater right now. For, yeah, for, for, high the, schools, for high school kids. Right, if we keep the schools closed. And he said it's not... It's a public health versus public health issue, but one of the comp- one of the um, data points he makes or, or um, expresses in this video is that um, the chance of your child dying from COVID is literally one in a million. Yeah, it's it's except it's exceptionally low. And this and is the director of the CDC. Right, right. Uh, the we don't see. And again, thank God I have two young children. Mm-hmm. Thank God we do not see the death curve that we see with things with we saw in 1918, mm-hmm. where a lot of kids and a lot of young working age people uh, got sick and died. What we see is a lot of old people get sick, a lot of old people don't make it. Right. And, and people are rightly worried about a mutation and things like that. Right. But so far, we don't have any evidence right. to suggest that that's happening. Right. And... Again, if the way the teachers' unions are acting, you have uh, the Fairfax Education Association, the teachers' union in uh, in Fairfax County, which, which is, is one, of the, one of the Virginia suburbs of Washington. And this State. is what you wrote about. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, in some of their rhetoric, they're talking about zero community spread. Mm-hmm. We have community spread of influenza every year, even with a vaccine, even when the vaccine is the right vaccine, because with the flu, they have to choose the strain, and sometimes they get the strain wrong. Uh, they did all their they did the best science, but it's science under uncertainty, and sometimes they get it wrong. Um, we have community spread of, spread of the flu every year. We have children who get hospitalized from the flu every year. Have you know, as awful as it is to say, we have children who die of the flu every year. Mm-hmm. We're never going to get to zero, and other countries have looked at this and have looked at. I mean, you know, Sweden has made a very different bet about how the coronavirus is going to go than the rest of the world, but they never close their schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the data I've seen is that there is no evidence that a student died from coronavirus, despite the fact that they had a pretty nasty outbreak in in, uh, in the spring. Uh, 
So in Virginia, they're, they're saying, okay, it has to be completely eradicated. And now we're getting stories out of the New York Times where teachers are saying not only, and they're, and they're being pushed by the teachers unions, yeah. oh, I yeah. should say that, yeah. because teachers, these I are, think... These are, it's the difference between the hardcore union activists and people who are teachers. Exactly. So you know, it, they may generally support their teachers union, they may vote liberal, but they still want to teach. It's their job and they want to do it. Right. Relative to the hardcore union activists who want whatever the union wants. Right. So in the, the New York Times article... Um, the teachers unions are saying not only are we saying teachers shouldn't return to school for health reasons, you know, potential problems with COVID, but we also think there should be limits on how much they can teach digitally um, because digital learning doesn't really work. Right. It, it's, <laughs> again, it's all a power, you know, it's largely a power play. The, the union, I mean, the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, the number two teachers union was brutally frank about this, I think back in April. They said, we need over $100 billion, it's more now, uh, in order to reopen schools for just, just give us money. Um, you know, you have the Los Angeles Teachers Union, the United Teachers Los Angeles has put out a manifesto that they want everything from wealth taxes to repealing Proposition 13 to defunding the police to banning charter schools. The list, you know, it's a laundry list of everything that the radical left has ever asked for functionally. Which again, to your point earlier, it makes it a cynic might think. One might think that they're channeling Jimmy Hoffa. Right. That they, they're not actually concerned about whether or not their children might come up with this virus. They're actually concerned about getting, as you say, yeah, about power. Yeah, political power. Yeah. And that, and that I think is something that is making it even more difficult to get people on board with the civic responsibility. Let's yeah. all work together because... You see, you see, you see the same thing with the with the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Mm -hmm. The way that they have been treated so differently than other than other. I mean, even if you, you know, no matter what you think of the demonstrate, the, the, let's stipulate the peaceful demonstrations. Okay. You know, of some of their demands or some of their proposals or their general sentiments. Uh, you know. Christians consider Christianity pretty central to who they are. Uh, and when you have the mayor of New York come out and say that the only gatherings that will be allowed are Black Lives Matter protests, mm -hmm. you're saying that something that is central to some people's identity is okay, but not things that are central to other people's identity. You are... It is reasonable to question whether we are all in this together, as yeah. the slogan goes. <laughs> no, I, and I think that's right. I think you're, you're, that's actually sowing a divisiveness instead of a unity. And right. that, as and you mentioned, this, we're all supposed to be doing right. this. The virus does not care why you are gathered. It is trying to replicate its RNA. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, has okay. no, it has no will whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're bringing in the science here, people. Um, okay, so let's end this again on a school, on a school issue. Um, there is another stimulus legislation package that's being discussed, and I know that it's Republicans are actually really battling about whether they think this is necessary. Um, but what's happening with the first one, or gosh, was it the third one? CARES? Was CARES Act the third I, one? I can't yeah, even remember. Yeah, there's so many I don't, I've lost track. Um, the CARES Act is being used by some of the Republican legislators in states like South Carolina and Oklahoma and Tennessee to implement school choice measures. Um, so they're taking some of this money and they're using it for block grant yeah. programs and things like that. 
What do you, that's actually, to me, seems like a silver yeah. lining. Yeah, I mean, there are two ways to look at it. One, it's a way to pry... It's a way to show the teachers' union that they don't hold all the leverage. Uh, again, the teachers' unions right now think, ah, the schools are closed. They reopen when we say they reopen. They reopen when we are satisfied. You know, well, okay, we're going to try to break... You know, if you won't come back to work, we're going to break your monopoly. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I mean... It's PATCO. Mm-hmm. 1981, when the air traffic controllers walked out on Reagan, and Reagan said, the military is going to do your jobs. Mm-hmm. And he fired them. And he, and he fired them. He, he fired them, the military did their jobs, and then they trained new guys, and new guys did their jobs. Right. Um, so if, you know, a state that says, if you guys aren't going to come back to work, we're going to find ways for your jobs to be done, that is a signal to the teachers' unions that they don't have quite as much leverage as maybe they thought they did. Interesting. And then if the teachers' unions insist on fighting it out anyway, well, then if you increase the amount of people exercising school choice, all of a sudden the monopoly of public education looks a lot different than it did six months ago. And that's generally, at least from our perspective, I would think, that's generally a good thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, people should have... Maybe now, you know, now more than ever, you know. Um, as the slogan goes. <laughs> as the slogan goes. Uh, should have the ability to make educational decisions for their children and for their families that work. And the teachers' unions are saying, no, you do not have that. You will not have that choice. You will uh, get whatever we, whatever uh, educational product we provide, and you will pay for it with your tax money, and you will like it, and you will elect you know and you will do whatever we tell you to do essentially well if the consequence of that is state legislatures say uh no we're going to work around you because you're you're not upholding your end of the bargain you're not coming back to work you're not coming back to work you're not upholding your end of the collective bargaining uh well too bad i mean that's you know management gets a vote management gets to participate in the bargaining parents who are never at the bargaining table uh you know are now in a position where you're making them choose, they will choose. Mm-hmm. And they're uh, going to choose, generally they're going to choose what's right for their kids. And they're going to choose what's right for their kids and what's right for their families. Yeah. So that's actually p- potentially, if there is anything positive about this crazy pandemic that we've been living through, that's potentially one of the positives. So we're going to end it there. Mike, thank you so much for talking with me about thanks this. For, thanks for talking. Uh, thanks for having me on, Sarah. Yeah, it was really good. And I'll, of course, turn this back over to you next week. But we're <laughs> just trying something new, and we hope you guys liked it. And that is our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have already subscribed, Thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. We will see you again next week.